Hello and welcome to episode 13 of the Figure podcast. Each week we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future. And I think I just want to begin this episode by dedicating it to Aretha Franklin who passed away today and I just, oh, I can't even like explain how many of her songs have been a backtrack to my life so far. Um, and yeah. I yeah, just, she's a real inspiration. Absolutely. Absolutely. Queen of Soul. Queen of Soul and um, Daphne on my Desert Island discs. Very good. So what has this week been about for you? Um, In one word, reflection, I think. Um, I kind of thought two weeks ago, turning 23 tomorrow, yay, it's my birthday, I'm so excited. So exciting. Um, Yeah. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Genuinely, I'm so excited. Like, I can genuinely feel like a princess for one day of the year. That's so cliche. <laughs> Do you think I still have that when I'm 50? Probably, yes. Yeah, 100%. 100%. Um, and I thought, I was just really reflective of what this year has been. And this year has been absolutely amazing. I've been to so many places this year and travelled so much. And um, I thought the last two weeks, I just wanted to think about what I want for next year. What I want as my sort of new year resolution, new birthday resolution. I decided to sort of really seriously reduce the amount that I was drinking just because I felt like this wasn't really agreeing with me very much. Um, and the reasons I was drinking weren't that healthy, which we'll touch upon. Um, so day to day has just been more and more thinking, more questions, you know, um, ready to start in September. I'm actually really looking forward to going to Scotland um, on Saturday and literally having my phone on airplane for as long as possible maybe the entire weekend well there's not very much to... service in scotland that's so fantastic it's, it's, i can't it's easy. i can't wait to just <laughs> sort of just be and i've really been really thinking about the present moment yeah. and how we are not i'm really in looking it enough. forward to going home and mm. i think it just resets me i can't wait i love london so much mm. but i can't wait to go into the middle of the field with yeah. my dog and just have nothing yeah and just have really, really fresh air. As a Londoner, I, I really you need to get out every every so. I feel like every four weeks, I feel the need to yeah, need need a change of scene. So yeah, I'm really looking forward to that. And I would actually use exactly the same word uh, mm. reflection to sum up my week. I've been thinking a lot about where I want to go in my career, in where mm. I want to live, in my relationships, in mm. doing this brilliant podcast, which I'm so so, so enjoying so much. And thank you again to everybody who's given us such uh, wonderful feedback. It really yeah. means a lot. Um, I would also say that this week has been about podcasts um, yeah. in terms of listening to them. And I have been continuing to enjoy How to Fail by Elizabeth Day. It's really, really good. Have a look if you haven't already. And I also discovered one called Podcast Radio Hour, which is done by the BBC, presented by a woman called Amanda Litherland. And it's got all of our favourite people, like Deborah Francis White and Ollie Mann and Dolly Alderton. And then they choose one or two podcasts that they like and then they share them and they have sections of it in the actual podcast. So it's a podcast about podcasts, which is what we did last week. It's meta. It's very meta. (laughs) (laughs) I would have a look at that as well. Um, And the other thing is that I have finished this book called Sal, which was written by Mick Kitson, who is my year 10 English teacher absolutely brilliant English teacher and uh, I have tried to give him some feedback but have gone through my other English teacher who then told me that he wrote this book in about eight weeks in his garden shed and it's just really gripping and it was one of those books where I was reading on the tube and I would get off the tube and I would literally just carry on walking down reading it I I missed my stop on more than once (laughs) did you really? 
Yeah, because I was just so gripped by this story. It's so good. So funny. It's just, that's brilliant. Yeah, no, and I was, ah, I'm in Putney and I'm supposed to be in Fulham. <laughs> and I was like, great, I get more time to With read the book. my book. I also, no, actually one time I went the, I was one stop too soon. And then I didn't notice that was one stop too soon. I had several messages from Kate who I was supposed to be meeting because I was standing outside reading my book. It's really, really good. Sal, Mick <clears throat> Kitson. And um, today, in today's episode that I listened to of How Not to Fail, I also was thinking about everyone... How to fail. Sorry, how to fail, sorry. How to fail. Um, I'm thinking about my life so far and the fact that it was A-level results today and... Um, congratulations to everybody. Congratulations to everybody. And, if, and, and, and equally, congratulations to people who may not have got their results they wanted, but, but well fucking done for getting through it. That's it. Yeah, and also... Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. It's absolutely fucking fine. Okay? (laughs) Literally, it is fine. You either can retake a few, go into, you know, go into a job... Go into a clearing, or go go into clearing, go into a job that may not necessarily need those types of A-levels. The school system is going to be completely revamped anyway. It is so backward how how we do things now and i promise you that if you are disappointed right now or if you're happy or whatever you will look back on it and you think thank god i failed this or i failed that or i did well in this because you will it will make your life really different and Mm. you will always hopefully i will i hope that you will see the best in the years that come and that it is yeah it was meant to be Mm. celebrate either way you got through it that's the main that's the main absolutely point So the first figure that we're going to be talking about is the Queen of Pop, Madonna, whose birthday is today. Yes, as uh, we're recording this, it's the 16th of August. She is 60 years old. Um, And I kind of can't really believe that she's 60, but then also she's had such a long career, so yes. Um, And she is the fourth best-selling record artist of all time. Yeah, and the most successful female artist of all time. I think it's the Beatles and Elton Elvis, John, Elvis Presley, and Michael Jackson before her. Um, and I didn't really realise the significance of her as much as when I did this the research because she's always been such a she's always been a part of my life. I know that sounds really corny, but genuinely, <laughs> like she has. She's always been one of the most famous people ever since I can remember. Um, How old were you when you remember listening to her music? So. Her record music came out in 2000. My mum bought it and Teddy and I used to dance, gosh, like we were at a rave um, <laughs> for hours. Um, so music, the single, is probably the song that I have the most connection to. Um, and then as I got older, I started listening to sort of Like a Virgin, Vogue. You know, those Celebration. Celebration. They're all so... Because they're, they're, they're in film... Yeah, they're, they're such a four big... minutes. Can't leave out Justin Timberlake. Exactly, they're love such a big, song. and also she's a, such a phenomenal dancer. I so yeah. love watching her dance and watching her move. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it seems like she just doesn't age in that. No, I she just she seems to ageless. get better and better. But then at the same time, she's defining what it means to be her age because she's very outspoken about it, and the mm. media always highlight how old she is and they've done that for decades they've mm. so many jokes about her being the granny or kind of like leave it alone and but look at Cher I mean Cher I know I Cher know. Mia for example yeah but I think that Cher isn't such a political no. figure no and that's why they love to sort of tear her down it's because she is so 
sort of outspoken is, is torched. I mean, outspoken doesn't even, that's, a, that's actually a tame word in, in, in regards <laughs> to Madonna. But it's also been exaggerated by, she does something and then it is so much, it's just blown up mm. by just other people. Really before her time. Yeah, completely. On LGBTQ, on War. feminism. War, politics, everything. She's definitely laid the groundwork um, for a lot of feminism as we know it, I think. Because the things that she was doing in the 80s, well, I, I mean, she wrote a book called Sex. I mean, what? I mean, that would have been so, uh, I guess, revolutionary at the time and really ridiculous. And I think a lot of people gave her a lot of slack for that and thought that she was just a bit of a, I don't know. I guess she well, likes that she's being called. Well, she likes to a, challenge like this idea that you can't be intelligent and sexy. Yeah, which I think is a really important thing. But I think, as you say, the the shaming of it is so much picked up in the headlines that you read about her. And I listened to a BBC Women's Hour um, recording, which was with Sylvia Patterson and Sophie Wilkinson, and they were just listing some of the headlines that she's been have involved Madonna, which include a total skank, a crazy bitch, the worst example of what a mother should be. Is that in relation to, is that in context or anything, or is that just the worst headline she's had in her career? um, I think that most of them are in context of when she divorced Guy Ritchie. Mm. And they were UK tabloids, because they are the worst. They were UK and US, I think. And one of them was, um, I can't wait for Guy Ritchie to date a 20-something-year-old so that it will drive this hag over the edge. Mm. And it's just, I can't believe what people write about other human beings. I know. No, it is and absolutely. Madonna has had <clears throat> it one, I think, probably the worst of any woman that I can think of. The way that she's been yeah, talked about. Definitely. So many powerful women. Um, anyway, when I was re- uh, researching her, I thought that these themes kind of came up as the things that I think are most poignant about her and her music. Um, and the first is definitely strength, uh, both physical and mental. I think you've got to have... She has an incredible physical strength, but also mental strength. Yeah. Sexuality, rebellion, religion, ageism, mm-hmm. and reinvention, which I think she does every time she brings out a new record. Especially when you look at interviews of her, she's always dressed completely differently. Mm. Completely new look, completely new sound. Everything is different, and it's almost as if she's just popped up and come back. I love that she just refuses to conform. She re- refuses she to conform. She no, won't not, be not put into a box. And she doesn't like doing what other people are doing, which is, um, again, said that in an interview when she was younger, is that anything that the mainstream were doing, she did the opposite. Her mum dying, she gave her dad a really, really, really hard time about um, him remarrying. Um, mm. Her stepmother being raised really strict Catholic, mm. uh, in a really strict Catholic school, she basically used to just do all the opposite and rebel. And yeah. she says that she's, really gr- she's really grateful that he was so strict because if he wasn't so strict, she wouldn't rebel and she wouldn't be the person that she is. That's interesting. Because she was just trying to do everything the opposite of what he was telling her to do. Um, which I think is really symbolic of the time. That was what was going on in the 60s, 70s, 80s, wasn't it? We were completely... I say we. Uh, not me personally. <laughs> but the, the, the sort of the youth society. of the time, society was rebelling against this sort of very um, dated way of mm. being. Mm. Um, and then she just came on the scene and it was like, boom, sexuality in your face, making political statement. And the speech that she gives in 2016 at the uh, Billboard 100, I think, awards, is saying that actually she found it really tough not having mm. many female allies back in the day. It's hard to find people who um, are 
have taken the stage in their own way without actually being influenced her, by her. I know. I, 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 my, the name that comes into mind is David Bowie. He was, he, I oh, definitely, really? yeah, I definitely feel like the two of them yeah. were just, oh, monumental yeah. in that. And on female artists who have had um, that kind of presence, I was reading this week that it has been rumoured that Madonna is going to be headlining Glastonbury next year. And I oh, really, God. really hope that the rumours are true yeah. and that we can get tickets. But I had rumours it was Kylie Minogue. Oh, really? Yeah, which again is another female artist I've been sort of falling back in love with this week. Her and Madonna. I love Kylie. She has mm. an amazing sound and she's also been, you know, has a huge LGBTQ following. Her career has lasted, gosh, over 30 years. Yeah. Um, again, mm. media constantly like, when are you having a baby? When are you having a baby? When are you having a baby? Oh my God, another heartbreak, another heartbreak. Oh my God, young man, young yeah. man. Ah, same yes. with Madonna. When, and you splash know. it all over the papers. Exactly, mm. exactly. Mm. Um, but with Glastonbury, so the only female headliners have been Beyonce, Adele, Florence and the Machine, I think. You're joking. I think in the last couple of years. Oh my God. So... It, I really hope that that is true and that it's Kylie or <clears throat> Madonna or both. Oh. Mm. <laughs> yeah, so I, I think another thing with Madonna, um, so I, I kind of dipped into watching this documentary that was made about her in 2005. It's called I'm Going to Tell You a Secret. And um, they, they're following the backstage story of that tour. And she explains in one of the songs that she's talking about the war at the time, so the Iraq war was going mm. on at the time. And she has her dancers dress up in a nun's outfit, a priest's outfit, a Greek Orthodox outfit, um, an Arab man's outfit. And they're all there. And halfway through the song, their clothes are ripped off them and they're all dressed the same. And she's saying that that's symbolising that the only thing that divides us are those outfits. And actually, we're all the same. We all belong to the same consciousness. Um, and, you know, having a... I think it, they had a... It's, Israeli and a Palestine child like children holding hands mm. you know and that's so inflammatory those issues are especially at that time, especially in 2005 everyone yeah. was so torn about that war politically and she just kind of blitzed over it I suppose um, I just really like that symbolism of tearing I think that's really interesting and definitely she, yeah. and calling it religious outfits and that, that that's yeah. what is outfits like yes. outfits yes because essentially all religions do pra- I mean they do they're all talking about love yeah they give the same message which is love and yet we've got so caught up in those sort of mm. menial technicalities that mm. we, I think we've forgotten that and I looked at that, that a lot for my dissertation um, it's just one section of it ended up leading to lots of different books and lots of different Mm. things. And I looked a lot at the religious texts and how, especially in Christianity, that has really warped what the original message was. And in particular, the association that we have in Christianity between sex and sin. Mm. And so what I discovered was that grew from other people writing things down and then doing these teachings, mainly men, in fact, all men, because all of the... Uh... I'm so surprised. <laughs> That's sarcastic. Um, but yeah, I think that the influence of writing can really change what an original message was. And so I was reading about things like St. Augustine, who was somebody who believed that all children were born sinful. And then this relates to why we have baptism. 
but the original sin of Adam and Eve is essentially the disobedience of eating the forbidden fruit off the tree of knowledge. Mm. And St. Augustine was the one who said that this sin of obedience was passed from generation to generation through sex, which is where this link between sex as the original sin. And she basically defies that. And even even yeah. the performances of Like a Virgin, where she's in that wedding dress and she's yeah. like coming down stage. She's, and she's basically just, it's F you to all of those sorts of things. It's incredibly beliefs. deliberate. And even her name, Madonna, Absolutely. as in Absolutely. the virgin being, birth, you know, and half the naked Mary. and kind of putting herself out there, having the same name as Madonna. She was excommunicated by the Pope three times. Yeah. Um, they really wanted to stop Which confuses that me, tour. because it means that she has been reinstated, what would you say, recommunicated? Yeah, I suppose so. <laughs> she's has to, in order to, for that to happen three times. Yeah. She's had to yeah. make peace. But I mean, she's, she's been described as Satan in some, oh my God. In some newspapers. Well, that's think- because those religious people don't want to question anything. And they're, and they're very threatened by someone yeah, who's asking the questions. And she says herself that religion is synonymous to not asking questions. Mm. Um, it's robotic thinking. And they're always doing things because everyone else is doing them. And no one's questioning actually why. And, you know, asking questions like, why do bad things happen to good people? I have a question for you. What is your favourite Madonna record and why? I think... Instinct. Vogue? Vogue, okay. No, that was a good answer. I love Vogue. Yeah. How come? What she represents for fashion, what she represents for women and, yeah, the just having the physical strength to do so many tours and mental strength to face up to the media and to keep being and what I love what she said was that people she says people describe me as controversial but I think that the most controversial thing I've ever done is to stick around Mm. and I think that I just I love the way that she keeps defying what your society dictates that you're supposed to do Mm. and also this latter part of her life I think is definitely been dedicated to her fund um, in Malawi and she's mm. started up several orphanages and schools and she's adopted now four children from Malawi and she's recently moved to Lisbon um, this year because her son uh, David is a footballer or wants to be a footballer so she describes herself as a soccer mum now. That's brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> The second figure this week is that doctors will double the amount of units of alcohol that their patients claim that they consume, which is actually really quite significant. When I first, when we first decided on this stat, I thought, oh, okay, that's an interesting stat. And then I actually mm. really thought about it. And like you said, it's like, well, okay, so I've had five glasses of wine this week. The doctor is extrapolating 10, yeah, which is actually a lot more. Mm. <laughs> it is a lot more. Yeah. It is a lot more. And it's research that's come out, I think, in the last couple of days, or it's quite recent. Very recent. And um, it was a survey of, I think, 200 GPs. And across the board, they found that people are not necessarily telling their doctors how much they drink for, Mm. I think, partly because lots of people underestimate it. Young women are among the people who underestimate it the most. I think that's because you think in your mind, one drink, one unit, maybe. I don't think that people understand what drinks and units are. I still exactly. don't understand what drinks and units exactly. are. Exactly. So one unit is basically the amount of alcohol it takes per hour for your body to digest. Not digest, but to So if detoxify. I have one large glass of wine, how many... Is that one unit? It's three units. That's three units? Yeah. A large glass of wine is three units. Wow. Okay. Yeah. 
See, there we go. I am underestimating there. And I'm also being one in ten people who are surprised. (laughs) Got all the stats on this. But actually, the final one that I want to share is that 14% of people feared being judged by their doctor Mm. if they actually told the truth. Oh, definitely. I think we have a real issue. So they know that their doctors also drink, but lol. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, shame seems to be a theme, both for sexuality and particularly for women and just lots of people feeling threatened by that and still not being an accepted social norm. But I think alcohol is another one. Definitely. Young women definitely feel ashamed of how much that they drink. Yeah. I think also that comes from what can potentially happen to you as a woman when you get drunk. I think it's because every mum or woman, like older woman or anyone always says, you're putting yourself in a vulnerable state. Be careful. Don't drink too much. I say that younger women state. say that as well. I'd, um, I'd say that to my friends no, and true, people but I mean, who are growing... younger than me and older than me. And, and I've had experience of that myself. So No, no, of course. Of course. So would I. Um, absolutely. I would never say to anyone, don't be wary of mm. that. Um, no, I think I think my point is when I was younger, that was always told like for years and years and years and years and years, drummed yes. into that. So so much so that now if I drink a lot, I think oh, I'm directly defying that advice and maybe yeah, that's silly or stupid. Or but I also I think have done that. that there's an element of drinking to have fun and to have pleasure is also something that we don't necessarily accept in the way that we should. And it's mm. the same with sex. Like, yeah. women and pleasure, there's some so sort true. of... There's been a shame culture there's that's shame, been introduced yeah. to that. Yeah. Um, and that's to control it. Yeah, That's it to is. control it. That's to control... Anyway, before we get preachy, because I could 100% <laughs> get preachy... We're not um, going to be preachy no. at all. We're... Um, but that, no, but that's such a good theme in that shame and pleasure for women 100% yeah. always discouraged. And it comes into alcohol as well. It does. But the recommended amount is 14 units a week. And I think that people don't necessarily know what even 14 units are. And also that a binge technically is six units. So that's... In one night. In, in one go. Yeah. So if you night. have two large glasses of wine, that's technically binge drinking. Yes, because a large glass, I believe, is 250 mils. So two large glasses is like 500 mils. Wow. Yeah. Which is quite a lot of wine. Mm. That's probably about six units. Yeah. Interesting. So I have a question. Okay. You did dry January this year. I did. Year. Yes, and not you, this year, but two and previous you've years. Also, not been drinking over the last two weeks. Yes. What have you found difficult about it, and what have you really valued about it? Good question. And yes, I did do two dry Januaries, and you know what the the you know what the worst part is, starting. Yeah. Hands down. Second worst, socialising, but again, starting. And the reason I say that is the thought is always worse than the reality. So the thought of dry January just seems awful. Mm. I went on holiday with a friend to a friend's twenty first, dry, dry, mm. sober, <laughs> um, as opposed to wet, <laughs> as opposed to wet. Um, and it was absolutely fine. Um, again, you, it's that thing of starting. Do you tell people, or do you have a kind of tonic water and lime, and it looks like a gin and tonic? No, I tell people, you have to tell people. And the reason you have to tell people is if you don't, then they, if they see it as a sort of informal, oh, I'm not drinking tonight, Mm. they'll just pressure you to drink. Do other people feel uncomfortable when you tell them that? Do they Mm. feel like they shouldn't be drinking because you're not drinking? 
Um, sometimes some people can be quite funny about that. Like some people will be like, oh, I'm only going to drink if you're drinking or I'm going to eat this if you're eating this. Mm. Some people have that, which is a bit weird. I don't really have that. I think, I think it's more if I'm saying, you know, I'm doing dry January or, oh, I'm not going to be drinking for this amount of time. People mm. are just like, oh, great. And then they move on. If you are a bit flaky and go, oh, I shouldn't really drink and I don't really feel like it. You're and just asking you. yourself to be persuaded. Because <laughs> I've also tried that. <laughs> and what have you valued about this, this time where you haven't been drinking? Uh, oh, gosh, the benefits just, yeah. I, I I honestly think there will be a time in my life where I won't drink ever. Really? Truly, yeah. I just feel really good not drinking as opposed to drinking, even though I do love it. And anyone who knows me knows that I do love alcohol. <laughs> but I don't think it's necessarily good for me personally. I don't think... I don't... I'm not taking moral high ground with anyone if with anyone else. It's not as if I'm being like, oh, you can only be healthy if you don't drink. No, I think it just... It does affect me. It affects my mood. It mm. affects my motivation. Mm. And I think I just it's, feel I think great it's when knowing I yourself and it's um and I think Bryony Gordon is so brilliant on this because yeah. she's incredibly honest and open about all of her years as, you know, party columnist mm. for the Times and she's written several books. I'm really looking forward to listening to those on audiobook. She's read them. I love it when that happens. Yeah. And she is someone who says that I am not really someone who can just have one drink. I'm mm-hmm. an all or nothing kind of person when it comes to that. And that she also thought that she was going to prove the experts wrong and that yeah. her mental health was going to be cured by drugs, no sleep and alcohol. I think that's what I think too. And then <laughs> and then she actually discovered that the experts are right and that exercise and mm. not drinking was how she is helping herself get better. Yeah. But I, it, is, yeah. it is all individual, it's all personal and... Everybody has different reactions to alcohol. And I think that on that note, that's my other question. How does your frame of mind affect how you are when you drink? Because I tried looking this up and all that came up was what do different types of alcohol do when you get drunk? Like if you drink gin, you will be this kind of drunk. And I just, I don't think that's right at all. <laughs> that's what people start talking about when they're drunk. That's Yes, exactly. Every time. But um, honestly, the, the frame <laughs> of mind, I really want somebody to do research on this because I think mm. it impacts it so much. If I'm... It's just so hard to measure, isn't it? It it's is. objective to everyone. But I think it's something that we should be aware of because mm, if I'm feeling low and then I go out and I have quite a lot to drink, that's when I end up being that drunk girl crying, which hasn't happened very often, but I had a particularly tough six months and it happened every single time mm. I, I was drinking. Yeah, I've never been um, blackout drunk. So blackout drunk is sort of that drunk where you really, really overdo it. And um, you don't even ha- necessarily have to drink that much. I've, I've, no. I've been blackout drunk and I've had a lot more to drink. Um, on other occasions. On other occasions. But actually, every time I've got blackout drunk, I either haven't eaten enough and I feel really low, low about something. Most of the time that happens in conjunction. conjunction, And one of the reasons why I haven't eaten enough is I've been too anxious because I feel low. So it kind of it's a bit has of a that cycle. Spiral. And so then I think, great idea. I'm going to get drunk now. And never ends well. Mm. And then I wake up in the morning and, and I, I think... feel utter, utter shame. Yeah. To the point where I, I, uh, the only thing I can think of that will make me feel better is drinking again or numbing it somehow. Yeah, I think it's the numbing and it's the oblivion I guess as well that I think if you are going through a really difficult time and you are just so stuck in your head and you want to get out of that Mm. you can then think oh god I just I'm just gonna I want to let go I don't want to think Mm. anymore and to some extent then alcohol can help but it can also end up being more detrimental 
than and you can end up feeling worse than you were beforehand mm. so, um, so yeah. I have three questions and um, my first one of them is when was the first time that you got drunk um, well I actually do you remember ha- I don't think I can remember I can't uh, sort of well, I don't know if I got drunk after this, but um, when my brother was born, I was uh, two and a half, and my mum, my dad had obviously put the champagne in the fridge and had it all chilled and prepared, and my mum left her glass of champagne on the low coffee table, and I drank the entire thing. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, wait, not two and a half, like actually, like older. <laughs> um, probably when I was fifteen mm. on the beach mm. at a beach party mm. on Strongbow. Yeah. Fun times. Um, here's a question. You need to answer that as well. Uh, when was the first time I got drunk? Hmm. I don't remember. Uh, must have been... <laughs> Fun night. Um, no, it's not long. I don't remember the night. I don't remember... When it was. When the first time I got drunk yeah. was. Uh, yeah, maybe a few weeks after my 18th birthday. Okay. Um, I think I did drink. I definitely drank when I was 16 and 17, but never more than a few glasses of wine mostly because it was just difficult to get when you're underage yeah you know you don't have it, God, it was such a thrill though it was like... such a thrill and cigarettes as well gosh and I was tall so I had to be the I was the one kicked in the corner shop like <laughs> go get them you know, I had braces as long and as you looked... didn't ask for a cream egg that's my favourite part of oh, Wild Child absolutely but they're trying to buy the wine and, and they're just talking about dropping the kids off at school and then cream and then egg. they say and a cream egg yeah and that's so brilliant um, but yeah, so my question to you is, have you ever felt the need to drink to improve your confidence? Yes, definitely. That's a very good question. Mm. A lot. I, I think, think the, the idea of Dutch courage. I really want to know where that comes from. Oh, I think it's that they used to carry around hip flasks. I can't remember. There's a really interesting story behind that mm. phrase. Mm. I will look that up. Um, and I think definitely when it comes to relationships as well. I think if you've got to have a difficult conversation or if you feel a bit nervous about somebody or just yeah. things in general can end up being a lot easier. Definitely. And um, you can also blame it on the alcohol. Oh my God, yes. Your inhibitions go, which yeah. means that but stuff you... pours out of you more easily when you're drunk. Mm. But I think that you can do something or, or you can say something stupid and then it doesn't really matter to the same extent because you can just say, oh, I was really drunk. I think that's True. another confidence True. thing as well. True. True. Yeah. Um, um, my third question is, what's your best drunk memory? Ooh. The one that's standing out is um, when I was in Vietnam and we had a really fun night and it was ladies' night, which meant that anybody who was wearing a dress, that included the guys if they ended up getting some dresses on, um, would get two-for-one cocktails and I was with a really fun group of people and I was with Kate and Mary. I'm really, you should have been there. You would have loved it. <laughs> and we ended up dancing on the tables and having such a fun time. And then we ended up seeing a similar group of people as we traveled down Vietnam. And we had a couple of people come up to us and go, you were the girls dancing on the tables. <laughs> and so it was like, we were notorious for doing this, yeah. um, which was really funny. But that was just a really lovely dancing with abandon kind of nights and I think those are my favorites when it's with your closest friends and you're having fun drinks like mojitos or prosecco or whatever and it's just drinking for the right reasons isn't it yeah and it's, it's celebratory. drinking to celebrate and celebratory and just when you feel like you want to have fun and you want to just like chill out a bit yes and then oh there have been so many times where you just thought actually 
that was absolutely brilliant. And yeah. It the other time I would say is when I was with you, Mary, and Lucy, and we all went to Notting Hill Arts Club, mm. and we just had so much fun God, dancing so to all of, all of the uh, disco tunes. That's my favourite thing to dance to. Top tips on a hangover. Oh, okay. Uh, always go with your craving. Don't hold back. If you feel like yeah. chips or crisps that's true for life generally actually but i think when you're hungover you just you just are more inclined to do that because they're heightened cravings mm-hmm. they're really specific and really yeah you kind of need to look after yourself i think when you're hungover oh and also hair of the dog which i discovered last year in croatia <laughs> horrendously hungover on a ferry no less oh that's a no oh, i know that's nasty. And, yeah two of the team were down uh lying down literally dead and claire and i could just about sit up um, and we tried Hair of the Dog, and it was the first time that I'd ever done that. And I think Hair of the Dog is an old wives' tale, but the reason it's an old wives' tale is it actually does make you feel a bit better. If you have gives you that half, lift. Half a beer for breakfast, and you won't feel quite as terrible. No, not no, you won't. You'll feel you'll still feel it's hungover. Very bad advice, but, but you won't. But you won't feel. Sometimes desperate uh, yeah. situations calls for desperate measures. Yeah, that's very true. The third figure that we're going to be talking about today is one of the images of Monet's water lilies, which were painted between 1915 and 1926 at his garden in Giverny, near Paris. Mm. I didn't realise there were 250 in total. There are. It's a series. Yes, it is a series. I didn't realise this. I thought it was water lily pond with the bridge, the lovely, that, that was it. That was water lilies. Um, which I remember doing in year seven art and um, (laughs) he was an impressionist and that was about it I didn't really know much else about water lilies so I'm very excited for you to tell us I also have some (laughs) questions so what is an impressionist good question (laughs) Um, I feel like a lot of people nod along with like oh the impressionist or the impressionism (laughs) and they're like yes love that and then they're like what is that So yes, what is an Impressionist? Okay, so an Impressionist is an artist who I guess was part of the exhibition in 1874. So it's in an era called the Belle Epoque in Paris. So it's called the Beautiful Era, which Mm -hmm. I think is a label that they have put on it after it's actually happened. They quite often do that. History of art is really interesting. There's some movements where they are happening and they have a name and they have an identity at the time. And there's some which people will then group artists together and say this is the this after it's happened so Mm. the post-impressionists are an example of that yeah so impressionists um they had their first exhibition and they who 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 are they they do you want me to name artists yes okay so claude monet auguste renoir um well cezanne paul cezanne was actually cubist uh, he influenced yes. Cubism, but he and he is defined as a post-impressionist, even though he actually displayed with the first impressionist exhibition. Oh, okay. Well, um, Manet, Manet, Edouard Manet was okay. one of the leaders of the impressionists, okay. um, and all of these artists essentially had been rejected from the Salon in Paris, which was the established mm. um, exhibitions that happened every year, and there would be people who would win medals for certain paintings and. The art critics all thought that the Impressionist paintings were terrible and that they weren't finished and that they were unpolished and 
that they were absolutely not worthy of being put on any walls in Paris. And so they created an independent exhibition. Gosh, how wrong they were. <laughs> yeah, you know, exactly. <laughs> absolutely. And uh, it, it all stemmed from there, really. And the name Impressionism was actually coined by one of the critics who was called Louis Leroy. Mm-hmm. And he described some of their paintings. It was a painting by Monet, actually. It was a painting of a sunrise. And he said it was only an impression. And then they took that word ah. and turned it into Impressionism. Okay. And that's happened quite a few times. It also happened with Fauvism, which is the movement that uh, Henri Matisse is associated with. So there was a critic called Louis Vaucel, and he said, uh, Donatello parmi les fauves, which basically means Donatello is in the great Renaissance sculptor mm-hmm. among wild beasts. Because in the Fauve exhibition... They had all of these crazy wild colour paintings and then they had a classical sculpture in the middle. Mm. And he felt like it was such a juxtaposition. And so fauve, meaning wild beast, mm. became the name of fauveism. So there's oh. lots of isms. There are lots of time. isms. A lot of isms. Um, but I guess the, the things that you would thematically talk about with impressionists is colour, mm-hmm. light and air. They painted outside quite mm-hmm. often, which is something that not hadn't been done before so yes much. when i was reading about waterlies it said it was just it was so it was actually very simple and mm-hmm. it was just sort of capturing the beauty of nature yeah and actually it did this in a very simple way but then was actually when you look at it it just looks so beautiful you almost don't know where to look first mm. um and that was a theme from a lot and of i think movement is another key thing with the impressionists because they're not trying to create a static photograph like painting and this mm. is the other thing to remember in terms of context photographs were had been invented by this point. Mm. And I think that painters were then feeling quite displaced. What did they do? Previously to that, the only way of capturing someone's likeness was to do a painting. And now you can get something which has an absolute likeness. What do we do? And that's when they start pushing the boundaries and breaking the rules and not getting into the salons and being part of the establishment. There's a kind of rebel part of it. And I think there's also quite a spiritual part of it. And they explored that in a, an exhibition that happened last year in Paris. Is that almost like they're trying to capture something that a photograph couldn't? Yes, exactly. Exactly. I, I definitely feel that when I look at Impressionism. And I think art. this is why people love Impressionism so much. Because it falls between... It is capturing a likeness of something. Mm. And you can see the skill and the way that they've chosen their colours and the the observation that's gone into it. But at the same time, if you went to that same place and you took a photograph, you wouldn't get the same effect. So mm. it's got some of the artist's vision in it at the same time as creating something really beautiful. Mm. And I, impressionism, impressionism is definitely my favourite movement. And Claude Monet is one of my favourite painters. Mm. And the Water Lilies are my favourite of his series. Mm. Um, they're beautiful they're really beautiful and you can go and see them in the best room in Paris which is the Musée de l'Orangerie can't say that word (laughs) l'Orangerie and it was actually commissioned for this room so it was by uh, Gustave Clemenceau who was the Prime Minister at the time or President I should say at the time lovely names (laughs) yes (laughs) Claude Gustave it's lovely he, he commissioned these to be part of the new exhibition, the new gallery, and they are in an oval room. Have you been there? Did we go together? Potentially. 
you essentially you can sit in this room and you are just surrounded by Monet's water lilies. No, I, I haven't because I would have definitely remembered that. Extraordinary. And what I would absolutely love, I think this should go on my top wish list of art, is to mm. sit in that room and be the only person in the room. That would be. Amazing. It would be incredible because normally it's just jam packed full of tourists. So that would be mm. one of my. F- that would just be amazing. I would definitely cry. They are sort of a birth of abstract art in a way yeah. because if you look they at them are. very close up you won't know exactly what is being depicted and it's only when you see them step the away you see the hole that you mm. realise how what he's painting the texture of them is quite interesting when you look at them closely together they're so bunched up you don't know where the line like there's no outline there's no, yeah there's no there's no definition and that's exactly how nature is there's no boundary in nature mm. it all is just part of one beautiful whole and I think this is what Monet captures but there's also some real sadness in these paintings which I don't think people realise necessarily is that if you look at the context of when he was painting he was painting during the war he had lost his wife in 1911 and he'd also lost his son and he'd also discovered that he had cataracts Mm. which there's all sorts of theories about that but the deep blueness of those paintings yes I heard that yeah could potentially be to do with him having no UV filter. Yeah. Although I'm not sure if that's true or not. That was in a documentary that Richard Hammond did (laughs) just ago. (laughs) No, but I think I learned that in schooling. They told us that in school. That was why that was that shade of blue is he couldn't tell the difference between green and blue anymore. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the other context factor to mention in relation to this um, painting is that Monet loved and collected Japanese prints. Ah, yes. And I, I literally had absolutely week. no idea about this until mm. I started studying history of art at university, was the impact of Japanese prints on Impressionism. So on in terms of actually how the picture looks, you've got things like composition. They had loads of negative space, which is blank space, mm. and it was actually quite radical that they wouldn't have the whole thing crammed with lots of different things. Mm. They'd have really bright colours. Mm-hmm. They'd have lots of diagonal lines. Mm. They would also do things as a series, which yes. is exactly what Monet did. Absolutely, he did yes. a series of haystacks, like the Japanese prints from by Hokusai. Exactly. So Those he's was, got first six yeah. views of food, Mount Fuji. Mm-hmm. So that was the way that the Japanese worked, and the way that they came over to Europe is really interesting. So Jap- Japan had been a completely enclosed country, and in 1855 they started opening up trade routes, and the shoguns, who'd been the kind of rulers and had been very oppressive, they these Japanese prints ended up sort of being a reminder of that oppression. And then when they were trading things, they would just wrap them in Japanese prints. They would wrap them in these woodcut prints. Because they were very cheap It's essentially like us wrapping things in newspaper. Or this is how it was communicated to me. Again, I'm not sure if this is... No, no, it's true, because they were incredibly cheap to make. They were just made by the up-and-coming middle class, I think, or for the up-and-coming middle class, um... And they were so inexpensive. Yeah. So it's now funny that well, they the go way that they so do it is w- woodcuts you can do just thousands mm-hmm. because it's a, it's something that you can just print again and again and again and again. Mm. Anyway, so Monet was actually the son of a grocer, and he lived in a place called La Havre. And so it's poten- potentially Monet was one of the first people to actually see these Japanese prints. And this was my speculation from what I was reading because mm-hmm. if they were if La Havre was a massive it was a massive trading port, and his father was a grocer. It's mm-hmm. not such a leap to say Monet may have been 
exposed to these Japanese prints at a very young age. Definitely. But the reason that that's contested is because the influence of it doesn't isn't necessarily seen until later on down the line. Okay. But what I wrote about in my essay was that Monet was a caricaturist when he was mm-hmm. younger. Again, something that not very many people know. Yeah, no, didn't know that. And the kind of defined line in Japanese prints would be something that he would probably empathise with because when you're doing caricatures, it's all about the line mm-hmm. and just distinguishing that and making one line mean mm. more. Or the subtle line that could make the difference between yes, an individual exactly. and another so individual. I thought that these would actually really appeal to him right from the beginning. And then it wasn't until he was slightly older that he started doing nature paintings and doing oil paintings. But I think that that influence has always been there. And you see it in the water lilies, in, especially in the symbolism of the water lilies. So in Buddhism, a water lily is symbolic of ignorance coming into enlightenment and consciousness and being open. And mm. so because it comes out of the mud and then it breaks through the surface of the water and it flowers and then at night it goes, it closes. Oh. Yeah. And there's other Buddhist symbolism um, which you can of... read into his work, such as bridges. Again, it's going from kind of ignorance to enlightenment mist which is about impermanent suffering Mm. um again this is all buddhist symbolism and you see bridges and mist and flowers in japanese prints and you see the same sort of subjects in monet's work that's so interesting and and makes sense given the context Mm. of the early 20th century as well i think it's just important to look at works of art in an entire way yeah and and the paint and the color is one thing but the meaning behind it and the meditative aspect of this. And Monet was someone who saw art as therapy Mm. and was one of the earliest people to really feel that. And now we've got people like Alain de Botton writing a book called Art as Therapy. And for me, when I see Monet's work, that therapeutic aspect of it for him translates into me looking at it Mm. and that I find it very difficult to be unhappy when I go into a gallery and I look at impressionist work in particular Monet it is it's so beautiful and sitting in the garden I went to the garden last May and it was just so wonderful I wish there'd been slightly fewer people again it's my wish of going into the 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 gallery and not having anybody there future Mr Charlotte take note Book out the entire gallery and the entire of uh, Giverny. That would be an incredible proposal. (laughs) (laughs) Don't Um, worry, I'll remind them if they're not a figure listener. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, got my back. Um, Yeah, I just, I think that there's so much that you can say about these beautiful works of art. And uh, I would really encourage you to go and see them if you haven't already. I think for me, the best Impressionist exhibition I've ever been to was... um, was at the Winter Palace in St. Petersburg. The Hermitage, oh, I the really Hermit- need to go there. The Hermitage Museum is something where I just... I, you, Shah, you will not... They'll have to literally pull you out kicking and screaming. I mean, it is <laughs> just room after room after room after room. Although, when I go to those kind of museums, I do it very differently in that I will look up in advance what are the best pieces. So does Jess. And yeah. then I just literally <laughs> march between them. And yeah. Otherwise, I, you get lost. And they all go into one. And I, yeah. I would rather just have the 20 most beautiful works of art in that Mm. one museum and then leave and be Mm. kind of amazed rather than be overwhelmed by so much art yeah thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the figure podcast thank you so much for all of your kind words and comments we really really appreciate all feedback
Uh, you can also tweet us at figurepodcast and you can email us at thefigurepodcast at gmail.com. And by the time you are hearing this, I will be 23. Ah! Exciting! <laughs> Until next week. Bye!